This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is Matthew Herbst, and I'm an associate teaching professor at UC San Diego's Eleanor Roosevelt College, where I serve as faculty director of the Making of the Modern World program. As board chair of the Burke Lectureship on Religion and Society, it is with great pleasure that I welcome you to our fall 2016 Burke Lecture by Dr. Mary Evelyn Tucker. The topic of tonight's talk fits within the Burke Lectureship's theme for 2016, Religion and the Environment. Our goal as a Burke Board is to organize our semi-annual talks around important contemporary themes and to invite speakers like Dr. Tucker who will enlighten us on these issues. Before I introduce our distinguished speaker, please allow me to set tonight's lecture in the context of the Burke Lectureship itself. The Burke Lectureship on Religion and Society is an endowed lecture series which honors the memory of Father Eugene Burke, a Paulist priest and scholar who has committed to ecumenical dialogue and engagement. Father Burke even participated as an advisor to the United Nations Commission on Human Rights, chaired by Eleanor Roosevelt, which drafted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is at the very root of the inspiration of Eleanor Roosevelt College here at UC San Diego. Father Burke retired from Catholic University of America in 1976 and became affiliated with UC San Diego and the Catholic community here. Before his death in 1984, Father Burke joined with members of multiple religious communities to outline the structure and the scope of this lectureship, and UCSD faculty and staff helped to shape the lectureship's organization. An endowment largely raised by hundreds of small donations, which the lectureship continues to seek, was created and is now managed by a board of directors composed of community members and faculty. We use these funds to bring prominent speakers to campus to offer timely and engaging lectures that focus on the religious dimensions of being human and the diverse and sometimes contentious impact of religion on our world. Tonight's Burke Lecture was made possible by the efforts of many people. So I'd like to take a moment to give thanks to the members of the Burke Board for their leadership and steadfast belief in the importance and the value of this lectureship, to our partners and staff in the Department of History who have tended to a host of logistical challenges, to our on-site coordinators, Ed and Stella Wade, and our volunteers, to UCSDTV and their continued partnership, to the Office of the Dean of Arts and Humanities at UC San Diego, to the International House for this beautiful location here in the Great Hall, and to our audience and the viewers on UCSD TV. And of course, to our speaker, Dr. Mary Evelyn Tucker, who made time in a globe-trotting schedule to spend with us. So thank you all. And now let me introduce tonight's speaker. Mary Evelyn Tucker is a senior lecturer and research scholar at Yale University, where she has appointments in the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, 
in the Divinity School and in the Department of Religious Studies. She teaches in the Joint Master's Program in Religion and Ecology and directs the Forum on Religion and Ecology at Yale with her husband, Dr. John Grimm. Dr. Tucker's graduate training was in Asian religions, having received her PhD from Columbia University in Japanese Confucianism, and since 1997 has been a research associate at the Reischauer Institute of Japanese Studies at Harvard University. Her publications on Confucianism include Moral and Spiritual Cultivation in Japanese Neo-Confucianism and the Philosophy of Qi. With Tumei Weiming, she edited two volumes on Confucian spirituality. Dr. Tucker's concern for the growing environmental crisis, especially in Asia, led, to her, led her to organize with Dr. Grimm, Grimm a series of 10 conferences on world religions and ecology at the Center for the Study of World Religions at Harvard, out of which they emerged as the series editors for the 10 volumes of publications that came out of those conferences, including Buddhism and Ecology, Confucianism and Ecology, and Hinduism and Ecology. This led to a culminating conference at the United Nations in 1998. Dr. Tucker and Dr. Grimm have helped to shape this new interdisciplinary field of religion and ecology, writing and editing extensively, as well as serving on the advising board of a number of important journals on this topic. They are also the managing trustees of the Thomas Berry Foundation, having studied and worked with Thomas Berry for some 30 years. To bring Thomas Berry's work forward, Dr. Tucker has worked closely with the evolutionary philosopher Brian Swim for the past quarter century, and together they have created a multimedia project called Journey of the Universe, which includes an Emmy award-winning film. Uh, there's also a companion book, which, which she co-authored with, with Brian Swim, and about which we will hear tonight. On a personal note, I have assigned this book, Journey of the Universe, in some of my world religions classes. And I have received the most unique comment about this text that I have received in my two decades of teaching. A student reported that this book changed his life. Now, typically, as a faculty member, we get complaints about books if we hear about books at all. So to hear that a book that we assigned in an academic course had a profound influence on the way the student thought about and connected with the wider world was inspiring. Dr. Tucker's work is ongoing, and I would go on far too long to detail it all and fittingly address her commitment to ecological understanding and environmental sustainability. Dr. Tucker provides a deeply insightful and highly engaged voice in our world today. Please welcome Dr. Mary Evelyn Tucker. Thank you so much uh, for that kind and generous introduction. And thanks to so many of you on the, the board here who gave me a lovely lunch, and I so enjoyed our conversation, and to Henry uh, for hosting us at this magnificent school, Eleanor Roosevelt College, and Fred Burke for picking us up, 
etc., etc. It always takes a community, doesn't it, to uh, make these events happen, and we're very grateful uh, for that, people who've prepared the food, etc. So I'm going to talk about this project, which is, of course, this film and book and so on, but it's more than that, and I'll try and give you a sense of the context. Just for the fun of it, how many had a chance to watch the film? Okay, so maybe afterwards this will be a context um, as well. So the idea here is that we need stories. Stories are what orients and grounds us, motivates us, inspires us, awakens our imagination, moves us to action, and gives us a sense of our place and role. We have, obviously, creation stories in all of the world's religions. Um, This includes our Genesis story in the West, Um, But as well, indigenous peoples have their creation stories, like the Hopi origin story coming out of the earth. The Japanese have their creation stories. This is Amaterasu, the sun goddess, from which all of the emperors of Japan descended. Um, So these cosmologies, these stories, give meaning and purpose and a sense of cultural identity. Much of this changed, however, um, in 1859 with Darwin's on the origin of species, and we know we're still recovering from that revolution. Um, But the other revolution, about 100 years later, was this magnificent picture. And we're of an age, many of you here, um, that that was revolutionary for us, wasn't it? To see the Earth from space for the first time. Earth rise, what a beautiful word that is. Um, So in 78, 10 years after that, Thomas Berry said, We need a new story, a story that integrates science and humanities, a story of evolution with a sense of awe and wonder, not just the facts or the mathematics, a functional cosmology, I like to call it a living cosmology, that activates human energy for ecological and social change. Broadened values and ethics are emerging, and that's in large part what I'm going to speak about tonight. The old story is insufficient. Because the old story seems to point simply to happiness is materialism, or the the more things, uh, the better we are, kind of thing. So we can talk forever about why our old stories aren't working, and why we need not just a new story, but many new stories. Now Thomas Berry, our teacher, again, some of you have probably heard of him. How many know Thomas Berry's work a little bit? Okay, he's been immensely influential. Um, Thousands of people have have read his books, which we edited, uh, many of them. And he was a historian of world religions, went to China in 48, 49, had this tremendous sense. We're, We're part of a global community, even way back then. He and Brian Swim wrote the first telling of a universe story in 92. This is the first time we kind of had an epic of evolution. You know, epics, Ulysses and so on, they, they have changed civilizations. So um, then, almost two decades later, we did this even shorter telling, if you will. It's a poetic telling. Um, our editor at Yale Press said, this is like Lauren Isley. If you know Lauren Isley, who wrote The Immense Journey, it's a very poetic sensibility that he was trying to evoke. And that's also what we're trying to evoke, drawing on the best of modern science, but also poetry and metaphor and even meaning. Um, The book has been translated into a whole range of languages, including European languages and uh, Asian languages, soon Indonesian as well, and hopefully Arabic on the horizon. 
Um, the film won an Emmy here in Northern California. It was on um, PBS for three years. It's available streaming on these various uh, internet basis. We've shown it on every continent. Uh, now, another part of this are conversations where I did interviews with 10 scientists uh, and historians relating the evolutionary story and 10 environmentalists who are showing us the way towards what Thomas Berry would call the great work, eco-cities, eco-economy, education, uh, and these are very gripping stories of what people are doing on the ground, but inspired by a larger vision of evolution. So the evolutionary context, then, is deep time. That We have an awareness of evolution that gives us a sense of astonishment and beauty and complexity. At the same time, we're also aware we're living in an age of extinction, of loss, of destruction, how many of you have heard the term sixth extinction? So we are in a sixth extinction period of loss of species, which I'll speak about later. This is hard to absorb. It leaves us sleepless at night. Um, as do these ecological and social challenges. I need not explain. Climate change needs an eco-justice response. People are suffering as well as the planet. This biodiversity loss is sixth extinction period. The other extinctions being called by uh, the change of climates, by asteroid was the last one 65 million years ago, the end of the dinosaurs, pollution and toxicity, food scarcity, increased equities, extreme wealth. And this applies not only in our country, but China and India who've bought into this modern myth of more is better and materialism is best and so on. So consumerism, this dream of progress that in many ways has been an American dream that has exploded all over the world, is a dream that's actually causing nightmares. Um, because we know this is not sustainable uh, as a global dream. So, we are in the age of the Anthropocene, um, the age of human-induced planetary change. How many of you have heard this term, Anthropocene? So I've just been at a meeting all day long with Mario Molino and the last Burke uh, professor, Rom, uh, here at the Scripps Institute, and it was all about climate change. Um, and their colleague, Paul Critson, is the one who coined this word uh, 16 years ago. And the level of discussion, it was superb, absolutely superb, uh, on how they can activate more people in the public on these issues. So Thomas Berry used to say, we're moving from the Cenozoic, that's the last 65 million years since the extinction of the dinosaurs, to what he called the Ecozoic, a new period in human history. Because we're moving, we understand we're in this extinction, but we're also awakening to a new intimacy with universe and the Earth community. This notion, we are stardust. Remember, Carl Sagan used to say that all the time. Uh, we've come from the stars. That's part of what this new story is trying to uh, have us live into. So we're also in what's being called a great transition. Paul Raskin over in Boston has this project. And the great turning, Joanna Macy, who's up in the Bay Area. Have you heard of Joanna Macy's work? She did a fabulous work on despair and empowerment in the nuclear age. She's in her 80s. She is really a force of nature. Um, so 
we know that we're living within a universe story. We, we kind of know it up here, but the idea is how do we know it here as well? So this functional cosmology, an epic story that inspires the great work of our time, a living cosmology, an integrating story for how we live. And by the way, I want to say from the very start, my colleague Brian Swim has indigenous roots. His father is native from the Salish people of British Columbia and so on. So this is not a white male hegemonic story or something. This was inclusive of all of the world's religions as we wrote it, um, as we filmed it, and so on. So here's the heart of what I want to say, is that we're moving, I would suggest, from enlightenment values, 18th century enlightenment values, which were for the individual and which have shaped modernity in powerful ways, in positive ways, and also in sometimes negative ways, of which we're seeing the consequences, of which uh, Dick Madsen's work, Habits of the Heart, and new sensibilities about col the collective as opposed to the individual are very important. So I'm going to say things that are much more complex, of course, but these Enlightenment values, French Revolution, American Revolution, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, magnificent values. Um, but now we know we're part of the interconnectedness of life. This gives us a, a different basis for actually putting forth values for the human community. Um, so ecology and the community of life are moving us towards a sense of interdependence, relationality, and flourishing. So these values with human connections, of course, at the center, would imply the new values would be life is the interdependence of species, not just human life, that liberty is relationality, um, that happiness is living in a flourishing earth community. I say it in a, in a group like this, and it seems completely obvious. But these values, right, are so ingrained in our American Republic, in our Western values, etc. So between in individual values, communitarian values, which are very uh, much the heartbeat of Confucianism and Chinese society that I've studied, that Dick has studied for a long time as well, um, how do we reconstruct the heartbeat of our values? Uh, and maybe some new kind of synergy of individualism and communitarianism is needed. So the new values are emerging from a glo global, global, sometimes they say, global to local. Um, the papal encyclical, uh, integral ecology is central to that. Again, just for the fun of it, how many have, have read the encyclical? Okay. Um, I actually think this is one of the most important documents of our time. Uh, and not that hard to read. You can get a summary or whatever. But why? Well, in part because this pope took the name Francis. You know, you've got 1,200 years of a legacy of an amazing uh, saint in, in the Christian tradition. But he himself is such an amazing person, isn't he? I mean, genuine, authentic, smiling, <laughs> despite all the criticisms and so on. Just remarkable. So what is this saying, this encyclical? Well, it's bringing together humans and earth. Social justice plus environmental ethics to eco-justice. And he's suggesting this kinship with all life from St. Francis down to the present 
And of course, the potential influence is enormous, a billion Catholics, but there's two billion Christians, and every religious tradition has made a response to this encyclical up on our website, the Forum on Religion and Ecology. We have a whole section just on climate change, a section on this, um, as well as work on the world's religions for the last 20 years. We just celebrated at Harvard this last weekend, 20 years of work in religion and ecology, of which this document is an astonishing flourishing um, forward. So it may sound odd, again, in a group like this, humans and earth. Well, of course, but many environmentalists, such as I was just speaking with, these tremendous scientists, think of the science, they think of the earth and earth systems, um, and humans, especially from the world's religions, think of poverty, of the poor, of social justice. And finally, this is coming together to say the poor, the vulnerable, are the ones who are going to be most affected by climate change, and they already are. Uh, so this is a new and important way forward, new values. So I'm going to also suggest, against any news reports, that we're moving from c competing nation-states to a flourishing multicultural and planetary civilization. This is aspirational. I will totally grant that. But we're moving literally from the Declaration of Independence to a Declaration of Interdependence. And this has been written. An Earth Charter emerged from 1992 through 2000 from the Earth Summit in Rio. You remember that first gathering of largest gathering of nations in human history. At that summit, uh, Gorbachev said we need a Ten Commandments for the Earth to guide the Earth into Earth community, into the future. So the preamble emphasizes this cosmology, that journey of the universe um, holds at its center, that we're part of a vast evolving universe, and Earth, our home, is alive with a myriad community of life. Now, as part of the drafting committee, um, 25 people from around the world, this was written by a scientist, Eric Chasen, at Tufts, who was trying to bring in the evolutionary perspective, but also, when we got to Rio in 97, the native peoples, in a row, when they heard that Earth is alive, lasted into the drafting process, they said, for the first time, our worldview is in this document. And they were weeping. It was very, very moving. So the three prongs of it are ecological integrity, social and economic justice, democracy, nonviolence, and peace. Without ecosystems being healthy, that's why ecology is, is primary, social justice, economic justice fits into that. Economics is a sub subsystem of ecology, if you will. Um, and you need institutions, democratic institutions, to make this possible. So we do have a declaration of interdependence. It's a beautiful document. I hope you'll take a look at it. Now, I've said globally. Now, locally, these grassroots movements illustrating interdependence, the People's March in New York City two falls ago. Anybody there? It was astonishing. I mean, I'm a New Yorker. To see 400,000 people on the streets of New York, the police were, were wonderful supporters of this all working out. 
Um, 10,000 people from the religious communities were part of it. It was an evidence of this movement of religion and ecology going forward. Led the front row by indigenous peoples from all the Americas. So moving. And the climate negotiators at the UN at the time said that's what they were watching, the People's Climate March. Um, this has effect. It's not just protest, if you will. Um, here was one of the big ones, as you know, off the coast up in British Columbia, Washington and Oregon State. Shell know you're aware of this, to try and stop the drilling up in the Arctic. And they did, <laughs> in part for many, many reasons. But, um, but Obama did stop that particular drilling. This was astonishing in Oregon and in Washington State, what these groups were doing. The Standing Rock Water Protectors. How many of you are aware of this group up in North Dakota? Largest gathering of Native Americans in modern history. Probably 7,000 people out there. 300 tribes. People joining them from tribes around the world, the Sami up in the Arctic and so on. Very moving, because my husband's special study is Native Americans were adopted into the Crow tribe in Montana. And to see this completely nonviolent movement, so touching. If you can watch some of the videos, it's absolutely riveting. And it's in a sense, we're not protesting, we're protecting our water. Absolutely um, moving in many, many ways. So the journey of the universe, then, is this integrating story bringing together science and humanities. An unusual combination. And I'm so honored that Ram invited me to this meeting because this, these are scientists. They don't understand why humanities, history, literature, art, re religion, philosophy, music, that this is what inspires the human for change. So they think if social science is at the table, we've taken care of human behavior but it needs the whole spectrum of the disciplines, doesn't it? So environmental humanities is what's emerging in these areas. UCLA has a huge program in it. UVA, you can look this up, environmental humanities. That's part of the conversation now. So the power of an integral story, that we're trying to understand the story through science, cosmos, earth, and human, but we're weaving the story through the humanities and we're reflect, reflecting on the story through religion, ethics, and philosophy. All of it has to be part of this change to new values. Because here's this web of life, some of it disappearing, the megafauna. Um, how much land will we have for the megafauna, especially in Africa? It's a huge question. The effect on people of climate change and some of these other environmental issues. We have at least 60 million refugees around the world. It was just in Berlin in September, the presence of a, hundred, of a million Syrian refugees. It's incredible, incredible, all across the EU, of course, but particularly in Germany. So the question is, what is our ethical responsibility? This is part of the great tradition, I think, of the Burke Lectures, the stunning people who've been reflecting on ethics uh, for our contemporary issues. So the sense of care then for humans, for ecosystems, and for other species, that's part of the expansion that we're speaking about tonight. So we need a larger sense of participation in the whole, 
awe that evokes action, reverence that inspires responsibility, ethics for the common good. This isn't so hard, but it's going to take work. It's going to take effort, because some of this is radically new for a Western mindset. So the broadened ethics, the expansion of ethics, inclusive ethics, earth ethics, cosmological ethics. Up at MIT, just two days ago in their bookstore, they've got a book called Cosmo Sapiens. Um, someone else has wrote, written a book called Cosm Cosmological Ethics that were stardust. You see, this is the expansion of our notion of what we belong to, not just our families or our friends, etc. This is exciting, you see. So care for the community of life and a comprehensive compassion, which all religious traditions have fundamentally called us to on some level. Now, I'm going to pause and we're going to shift and we're going to go to the Natural History Museum in New York. And when we finished those conferences um, that Matthew referred to, we did do a conference at the UN, but we also did one the next day at the Natural History Museum. When I went with my husband to talk to Mike, uh, Mike Novacek, the provost, and it was kind of scary. You know, it's difficult to do this in these science-based museums, and it was difficult to do that work at Harvard. Oh. Um, and I thought, oh my gosh, is the provost going to actually allow religions to come into this big auditorium, you know, and talk about this? He said, within 10 minutes of being in his office, we want you to come. We'll give you the IMAX theater rent-free. We got Bill Moyers to come interview people, and so on, a whole day thing. A thousand people came. And he, why? Because since 1998, he said, we are looking for an ornithologist, a curator who studies birds. Of the six finalists, PhD candidates, four of them had had their birds go extinct while they were studying them. That was such a wake-up call for the museum. Are we just standing at the edge of extinction, witnessing this? What is the role of science, you see, on these issues? So, they, at that time, they created a whole new hall of the universe. Has anybody been to it? It's quite amazing, isn't it? It's spectacular. You go through, this is, of course, looking at it from the outside, from Central Park, and so on, but you go through uh, the initial Big Bang, and then you walk down this amazing spiral staircase, and every footprint is like a million years, right? And you remember, as you get to the very end of this, they have one human hair under glass. And it says, this is all of human history. See, the context is changing. We're only 200,000 years as, a, as Homo sapiens. What is this long, beautiful, complex story about. And they created the Hall of the Earth, where we've got plate tectonics, which were, took 50 years to prove that plate tectonics, the volcanic action of, of the Earth, is why life has emerged here, and so on. They've got the deep sea vents, you know, that places like Scripps are studying and, and whatnot. Maybe life emerged from these uh, deep sea vents at the bottom of the ocean. We don't fully know, you know. Um, so it's an exciting sense of what science is presenting to us. They also created this Hall of Biodiversity, which is a stunning display of birds and fish and the megafauna, and to see young people up against this huge wall just looking at this 
stunning quality of color of butterflies and insects and so on. Um, but on the floor of this hall, um, they have a plaque which says we're in a sixth extinction period. It's not debated anymore by the scientists. But it says we can stem the tide of destruction. And they have one side for the, the, re- the, the devastation, the destruction of, of ecosystems, the other for restoration. What are we doing? Uh, you know, the reserves for our ocean and so on, like Obama just created in Hawaii. So it's this, we're in between destruction and restoration. So we're revising then the role of humans. The Natural History Museum, when you go through this long hall, originally you got actually a passport which says you are citizens of the universe. Isn't that something? Um, You come out with this new sense of your identity. The Earth Charter says you are members of the Earth community. And what the encyclical is saying, we have kinship that embraces humans and nature, which is, of course, what indigenous peoples have said forever. So that's part of this expansion of who we are, what we're responsible to. So the goals of this journey, then, this integrating story, the eternal questions. Where do I come from? Where am I going? But especially, how can humans become a mutually enhancing presence for the Earth community? Not a destructive presence, not a depressed and disempowered presence, but a presence that's mutually enhancing. So this awareness then of our relatedness to cosmos and earth, that we have a common evolutionary heritage. We have a fraternity with all of life, the care for the flourishing of both people and the planet. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness in new terms. So this notion we've come from the burst of stars, all the elements in our body came out of this, Um, that the formations of galaxies and stars and even solar systems are emergent processes and properties that scientists only have a glimpse of. Even when we were teaching at Princeton for a semester, and these are the greatest scientists on galactic formation, saying, we don't fully understand exactly how these have formed. That's amazing, truly amazing. And why our planet, our beautiful blue-green planet, is, at least as far as we know, the only place, the water-based life planet. It's extraordinary. And if you ask me in the questions, do I think there's life elsewhere? Maybe, but you know what? This is the planet I'm devoted to, and I think most of you, for your children and for next generations. So it's a volcanic planet, would be impossible, and if you go to Hawaii, you see that great lava flow on the big island. It's astonishing. This is a moving, living, vibrant planet. Um, This magnificent sense that we're in the Milky Way, one speck amidst literally billions of stars and so on, Um, and that these ecosystems have emerged over deep time, that the animals and the plants have emerged over deep time, our our fish friends right here on the coast. What a magnificent coast you have, absolutely stunning. Um, The bird life, the songs of birds, the migrating power and presence of birds, astounding. We don't even know how they do journeys from Tierra del Fuego up to James Bay in Canada. 6,000 miles, you know, journeys have their chicks, and the chicks go back even before the parents. 
These are amazing migrating um, intelligences that we live amidst. Caribou, salmon, turtles. It's astonishing. And of course, we live with this great diversity of human life. So in large measure, and you're right here on these beautiful shores of the Pacific, you know, the pulsating power of the ocean and where life may have emerged, we conclude Journey of the Universe by saying we belong here. We've always belonged here. That is what we're trying to suggest in this film, in this project, and especially for future generations. I'm so happy to see students here. And I'm going to conclude here with a special wish for the next generations that we can do this together. Thank you very much. Thank you for that talk. And kind of two questions, but maybe they're, they're interrelated. One is, where does this notion of the Gaia hypothesis fit into that? And, and then if we're, if we're discussing that and presenting this, uh, how do those that want to adhere to a traditional cosmology because of their religion, and how would they respond to some of this, or how have you had to help them understand some of this? Wonderful questions, Matthew. So the Gaia hypothesis, as many of you know, was the idea proposed by James Lovelock and Lynn Margulis at University of Massachusetts in Boston. And Lovelock was a NASA scientist in the UK. And they were basically saying that this is a homeostatic Earth system, right? Um, some people would call it, and we call it in the film, a living cell, actually. But, so there's, there's the science of this, which some scientists didn't necessarily debate homeostasis, that, that the self-regulating dimensions of the atmosphere and land and so on were processes that kept the temperature at certain rates. So there's the science of it, but you know the reaction to the term Gaia hypothesis was unbelievable. William Golding, a writer who did Lord of the Flies, lived near James Lovelock, and as they were talking one day, and he was trying to get a title for it, Golding suggested Gaia. And for whatever reasons, we had Lynn Margulis, where I was teaching years ago at Bucknell University in Pennsylvania, and the scientists went ballistic on her. This is you know, probably 20 years ago. For all kinds of reasons, but partly, I think, because this term, Gaia, a mother goddess, you know, earth mother, etc., um, from, the, from the Greeks, really didn't sit well with a lot of the scientists. So they didn't like this metaphor, this myth, and they didn't like what sort of surrounded it. They were too new agey or whatever. It was absolutely amazing. Lynn Margulis really had to wear her armor, and that wasn't just at Bucknell. You know, she had, it happened a lot. So what we do in the film is we, we speak about the self-regulating dimensions of the Earth. We don't use that term. We're certainly not averse to it. It's in a lineage that's now you know, fairly well established, certainly as a scientific idea. But um, I think it, 
The tricky thing, even about Journey of the Universe, is we're stepping over some of the boundaries a bit. For, it was a 10-year project to write that script, to do the film, um, to Yale Press in the science division has published it and so on. So the science is very tight. We spent many summers up here uh, on Whitby Island off the coast of Washington, uh, off Seattle, with scientists in a you know 10-day seminar each summer to go over these ideas. But we want wanted to make these ideas available to a larger public, to our students, but to high school students, too, um, who have a tremendous amount of scientific knowledge now. But what does this mean, right? What does it mean? Now, even as I say that word, um, I'm in a very secular university, Yale, right? Uh, and two wonderful scientists said, to us afterwards, we're having lunch with them a few weeks later. This was just opened five years ago, which seems like nothing to me. Um, and they said, why did you do this film? And I said, well, in part, and I was very tentative, you know, in part, maybe because we'd like to think about or consider questions of meaning or even purpose, they went ballistic. Because those are questions not treated by science. And so if someone else is doing it and even uh, bringing science into the equation, they don't feel comfortable. So these are some of the challenges that we have. And the challenge you know, specifically um, is science with metaphor, science with meaning, because we are trying to say, not here's the meaning, here's the purpose, no, but just invite these perennial questions back into the conversation so that your late night dorm conversations can be, why, how do we belong here? And why do we belong here? What does our life mean or matter? And what are we going to contribute you know, to next generations? This is all about the future of all generations, human and all species. So that was a long answer to your first question, but your second question was a very important one as well. As I understood it, you were saying, well, cosmology, creation stories are part of all the world's religions, and how do we integrate that, mingle with that, respond to it, respect different creation stories? Um, outside, there's some uh, flyers we did one large conference at Yale, about 400 people came, it was called Living Cosmology, and it was Christian responses to Journey of the Universe. So we had many of the Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant um, traditions, evangelical, Mormons, etc. So what does your tradition say in response to this epic of evolution? It was very dynamic, very exciting. And there's a book that was published this year from those papers. But we also did a conference up at the Chautauqua Institution in upstate New York, 100-year-old place where people gather in the summer and swim and enjoy music and some, but also have lectures. And we had NASA scientists in the morning. And then we did, what are the world's religion's responses? And this is all available on the internet. Journey of the Universe website has the talks and so on. So the Asian religions, Western religions, indigenous religions, what would be a response? It's not to say that's not an ongoing conversation. But the bottom line would be we want to respect the multicultural dimensions of our emerging planetary civilizations. Um, so how does that 
mean they are going to integrate with or respond to or reject evolution. You see, that's, that's part of the dynamic moment we are in. So this is simply suggesting here is one story that brings us together. There are many stories, many traditions, the one and the many, if you will. It's not an easy task by any means. Okay, that was a long, yeah, you have a follow-up. Yeah, please. <laughs> so I'm actually very interested. Okay, come up to the front and you'll get in line here. <laughs> um, in your idea on how to express and communicate these scientific ideas towards the public without watering down the implications of these scientific discoveries. For example, I'm extremely interested in animal behavior, yeah. and I feel that finding those similarities between animal behavior and human behavior provides a connection that can then promote more ethical interest, yeah. but I'm afraid of the bias that it then creates. Mm -hmm. So how do you bypass this almost inherent bias in creating ethical creation without then like ignoring the human connection. So the, between the science and the ethics yeah. in a way? Yeah, and the, so through the lens of animal behavior, that's, that's tremendous. You know, I think, and I'm sure you do too and know it probably well, much better than I do. In the last 20 years, what we have learned about the more than human world, right? The, the other animal world, we're animals too, but and I was just trying to indicate, you know, migrations, but language, right? Communication through song and, and whatnot of whales, of these incredible mammals in the ocean. <clears throat> um, so that explosion of knowledge, I mean, imagine 100 years ago, we'd be hunting whales, and some countries still are, but the sense, that's just part of our expansion, isn't it, of ethics, it's already happening. And, I would say, I mean, I wouldn't have imagined when I started teaching that it would even be an issue about dissection in, you know, of, of uh, frogs or mice or whatever. This is huge right now. You know, why can't we do dissection through computers and so on? So I think this is moving and in large part driven by your gen next generation um, that sentience, this is the heart of what I think Journey of the Universe is saying, sentience is differentiated throughout the life world. Plants, animals, other animals, birds, etc. So what does that mean for our consciousness? I don't think the science community is resisting it as much as one would imagine. Who's the most popular scientist on the planet? I would say Jane Goodall, right? Why? Because she has given us that profound sense these are kin. These are sentient beings. You see a handshake with a chimp. You see her walk into a room. She is electrifying, right? And many of the other women in the primatology world, the same way. So keep going. <laughs> that's, that's my advice. I don't think it's going to be that hard going forward, okay? I'm sort of uh, struck by the image that you present and by the world we live in, mm -hmm. in terms of the terrible, terrible situation in the Middle East uh, and the terrible, terrible things that are ongoing now. And I just think, well, we have this and we have this. What, you know, I, I'm sure you can't give us the answer, mm -hmm. but it just, it's just hurts my heart. Yeah. It really does. Yeah. 
So it hurts mine, it hurts graces, it hurts many of our hearts. And I am left sleepless at night about these issues. I've been journaling for 30 years. I've got boxes of journals, you see, just on this type of a question. And this is why just the term deep time is, I think it's a consoling term in part. But let me give you an example of, so... I went to college in Washington, D.C., where Nancy Pelosi went. We were very involved in civil rights and the anti-Vietnam War. Does this sound familiar <laughs> to some of you? And when Nixon got into office, I said, I'm leaving the country. I don't want to talk politics tonight, by the way. I really don't. This will be my only comment. But I did say, when Nixon got into office, I said, I'm, I'm leaving the country until we have another president. Um, and I went to Japan. It changed my life. I came out of this Zen retreat at one point, and I saw Nixon resigns. Oh, I can come home again, <laughs> kind of thing. But it was partly also this sense of history. My grandfather was a historian at Columbia, and he studied European history. And he was trying to make sense of the two world wars in Europe and the causes being nationalism, among many things, right? And that's why I keep saying we've got to go beyond the nation state for our identity. This is, we see the results if we don't. But so he, his last book was Nationalism, a Religion. Now, for him to do European history at Columbia in the early part of the 20th century, it was all American history. He got them to open up to European history. His student, Ted DeBerry, um, began to study China and Asia and went off to, to uh, China in 48, 49 with Thomas Berry. And the two of them began to try and understand these philosophical and religious systems. Now he, Ted DeBerry, went on to create an astonishing Asian studies program at Columbia. I think one of the best. <laughs> Dick, notwithstanding, you know, Harvard and Yale are good too, but I really think this notion of studying texts and traditions and getting a grounding. So he's, he's did that, he's still teaching, etc. So from European history to Asian history, I was a student of Ted DeBerry's. And as we were talking about at lunch, I started actually teaching world history after coming out of Columbia. In other words, does shift from the line of history is through the West? No. We have to do world history. And now, as some of you know, and it's in the high schools, we have big history, which is trying to tell cosmic, earth, and human history. That is in one lifetime. Do you see what I mean? I mean, from my grandfather's time to now. My point is, that actually gives me a sense of hope. Because let me just add one thing into it. Ted DeBerry went to the Navy um, school up here in, in Boulder, and then it's up in Monterey now, but the language school, before he went off to the Second World War in Japan. He and Donald Keene and many others came back from that war. Many of the great Asian scholars came out of the Second World War. They said, we've got to understand these cultures, and they set up these amazing programs. So my deepest feelings is, despite this conflict, um, and this is what we need, of course, in academia, understanding of Islam, the Middle East, etc. But even out of con conflict comes these new fields of study and understanding. These are my, this is part of my hope. Thank you so much. Um, I was thinking about a book that I had read 
20 or more years ago by Matthew Fox, The Coming of the Cosmic Christ, and he was influenced by Brian Schwimm. And, you know, within this book, it's, it's about the lack of separateness, but within a divine context, mm -hmm. because he was a priest. And it was not a very popular book by church authorities. It got him into a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if all these years later, if you think that the expansion of Buddhist ethics and ideology have had an impact on our willingness to accept this lack of separateness between us and the earth and other living beings. Absolutely, yes. And <clears throat> this is why we have done this project on world religions and ecology to bring to bear. I didn't put this overtly into this talk, um, <clears throat> but to bring to bear the ethical traditions into modern circumstances of interdependence of Buddhism, for sure, of compassion that Buddhism has at its heart, wisdom and compassion. That's partly how we also deal with these <clears throat> horrendous moments. We have to have some kind of inner wisdom and compassion. Um, so yes, and when we've shown this in China, as I was explaining at lunch, you know, we've built in Confucian um, and Taoist ideas as well. And the Chinese, I write the characters on the board for heaven, earth, and human. The most beautiful, the most beautiful sayings of a neo-Confucian thinker, Chang Sai, 11th century <clears throat> Chang Sai who says, heaven is my father, earth is my mother, and even such a small child has a place in their midst, and everyone is my brother and sister. And they, this is known well. We were, we were teaching in China this summer in Yunnan in the West. They knew it. We went to Korea for a summer session. They knew it in Korea. All through the Chinese influence world. You see, this idea is very even to the next generation, is, is well known that we belong to something much larger. So, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I see Dick over here, and, and I know maybe we should consider this the last question or whatever. Maybe you have one, Matt, but you have the last word, Dick, I think. Thank you. <laughs> uh, no, I just, I think science, scientists will be able to convince other scientists. Scientists listen to each other. Yeah. I think the issue has got to be, how do you convince humanities, or the humanities, if you will, of, of the scientific uh, evolution that you're talking about? I mean, I don't see that happening. I, you need a champion on both sides, yes. I think. So. Definitely. Thank you so much. You know, I was in the MIT bookstore, as I was explaining. We were staying there, although the conference was at Harvard. <laughs> You know, I think what science has done, the, the publications are tremendous, aren't they, in chaos theory and emergence theory and all kinds of things that scientists have tried to make available on every scale of the sciences. We need to keep doing that plural. So the partners, and this is why I so enjoyed lunch and hearing what you're working on, um, the partners that are needed are absolutely critical. And my deep feeling is this is a critical mass. It's not, it doesn't even have to be a majority. It's a critical mass. As Margaret Mead said, a few people you know, can change the world type of thing. I'm not trying to be idealistic. I'm trying to be very realistic. And it does take 
this partnership, not only with next generations, but across disciplines. And I thank you, and I thank all of you for coming tonight, and I hope that with your students or your children, you will empower them into the flourishing of the Earth community. Thank you so very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.